Welcome, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the baseball side of things, as it was reported from ESPN and the Associated Press that the ninth work stoppage in baseball in the first time in 26 years almost certain to happen starting December 2nd, which will freeze the free agent market and potentially threaten the start of spring training in February. Now, of course, this is in accordance with the ongoing negotiations for the new contract bargaining agreement commonly referred to as CBA, and all of the players, union reps, the owners have to come to an agreement on this contract bargaining agreement prior to at or prior to 11:59 p.m. on December 1st as that is when the current one expires and as i just mentioned not very likely that that is going to happen which means we're pushing more and more likely towards what everybody was dreading and nobody wanted to see which is a lockout and of course, it's unfortunate for the game of baseball because, to be quite honest, baseball, especially among younger people here in the United States, is a dying sport. That's why you see all of these changes trying to be made in the game of baseball by Commissioner Rob Manfred, some of which are beneficial, some actually help the product of baseball, others are completely irrelevant and make no sense, which is why it's a little bit of you're trying to do too much. And, again, nobody wanted this to be the case with the lockout. There was just too much differences, or too many differences, I should say, between the players and the owners. And so, now, what's going to ultimately happen is the signing situation with free agents, of course, can start six days after the World Series concludes. And so... It's either going to be a signing freeze, which is just a hard deadline and players can no longer sign, or the market will just slowly crawl to its own stoppage while no official lockout is declared. Ultimately, one way or the other, it's going to lead to a lockout. Whether the market has that freeze enforced by the owners or whether or not it's the market grinding to its own halt. Agents have no idea what's going to be happening. They have heard nothing from the Players Association, and some agents are even braced for a two-week scramble to sign free agents whenever the lockout ends. So those two weeks, if that is how everything pans out, it is going to be arguably the most chaotic two weeks in the history of baseball as free agents will be signing left and right to try and claim a team and get on a team 
before they start up spring training, players begin reporting, and then the spring training games end up taking place. And so there may be days where 15 free agents sign at once, and it's going to be that constant refresh, spamming the refresh button on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever social medias you may have, trying to find the latest information. And then, of course, having your TV set to MLB Network for 24 hours a day over that two-week time frame. And, of course, it may sound like a great idea that all of those free agents are signing, that all of the news is coming in real time. But nobody wanted baseball to get to that point. Nobody wants baseball to get to that point because then at that point, it's clear that there's still a divide between the union and the owners. And for baseball to be successful, those two groups, they have to be as united as physically possible. Of course, they're always going to have some differences, but for the most part, they have to be on the same page with everything. Of course, the owners, they want a salary floor. The players do not because they think that if there's a salary floor, it's eventually going to lead to a salary cap, which a floor cap system automatically goes together. You can't mandate a salary floor without a salary cap. Players want to prevent teams from tanking for higher draft picks. Baseball is just all over the place at this point. And, again, it's unfortunate for the players. It's unfortunate for the fans who are going to be without baseball and without baseball news for quite some time. So if this continues, there may or may not be much to really talk about on here from the baseball aspect, because if they go into that lockout, nothing is going to happen unless, of course, there's updates on the lockout situation and ultimately the end of it. Until that happens, there's not going to be much baseball news. It's an unfortunate predicament to be in, but that's where things have gotten. And, of course, these discussions between the union and the owners only got worse when the pandemic hit because that really started the separation and the polarization of baseball between the players union and the owners. It's a terrible situation. It's one that nobody wants to really be in. But again, you can't blame anybody but the players themselves, the owners themselves, for what has happened. Because every single one of them are responsible. Every single one of them can be blamed for where we're at right now. And then it's ultimately the fans who pay the price because it's the fans who are going to be without that news of free agent signings. It's going to be the fans without the excitement of players reporting to spring training, seeing players take batting practice for the first time, watching those spring training games after being without baseball for several months throughout the winter, and then ultimately the fans who lose out come regular season time. It's a, it's a situation that nobody wanted to get to. And again, I cannot stress that enough. This was a last resort for the players, for the owners, and this is ultimately what it's going to come down to. And at this point, it's a waiting game to see how long it will last, how long will they try to stand firm in what they want before they ultimately compromise, who's going to get the better end of the deal, whether you want to see it that way or not. There's going to be someone who gets the better end of the deal, or one side for that matter. But again, it's just terrible for the game of baseball. It's already a dying sport, especially for younger fans. And now it's just going to progressively get worse and worse. Now, speaking of next season, whenever that may happen, whether it truly is February for the start of spring training or at whatever point the two sides agree to a deal, it is a make-or-break year for Pirates starting pitcher Mitch Keller. He has had multiple opportunities at the major league level to prove himself 
as a starting pitcher. He saw some starts in 2019. Of course, that was really his first taste of the major leagues. So you gave him a little bit of time, the organization did, and the fans, to settle down, get comfortable at the major league level. However, he came into the 2020 season. Yes, it was a shortened 60-game season. Yes, it was limited time for him and all of the other players to ramp up after the pandemic started and everything. But it was still not the season that you wanted for Mitch Keller. He made a handful of starts in that season. And again, his ERA, his stats were just not good enough. He had five starts. And yes, he did have at 291 ERA, he only threw 21 innings in 2020. So his starts were averaging about four innings per start. And again, that's not good enough because you want your starter to go longer into the game. And again, I get that that was because of the quick ramp-up time. But the stats for Keller in terms of innings pitched is not good enough. And the fact that he's giving up a run every three innings in those 21 and two-thirds innings across five starts is an indication that that 291 ERA, if it was stretched out over a full 162-game season, it was bound to inflate significantly. And then we saw in 2021, he made 23 starts. Of course, spent some time down in AAA Indianapolis, but a 617 ERA there for Keller as well in 2021 with the Pirates not down in the minor leagues. But again, it's just not good enough for Mitch Keller. And he was supposed to be one of the Pirates' pristine pitching prospects, was supposed to have that ace-like potential for this organization, and they're ultimately just not getting it from him. You've had multiple years now of working with Keller. You have a new pitching coach in Oscar Marine entering his third year with the team who has spent the first two years working extensively with Mitch Keller. At some point, you just have to either get things to work out for him or ultimately move on. The Pirates did it with Trevor Williams after a harsh 2020 season for him. The Pirates did it with Chris Archer. And again, both of those players were brought into the organization under Neil Huntington, just like Mitch Keller. So Ben Harrington has no obligation to hold on to Mitch Keller. He could let him go at any time and let him walk into free agency, buy him out of his contract, designate him for assignment. Nobody would claim him because of how poor he's been. So again, at that point, Ben Harrington has full control of the roster. And just like we saw with Chris Archer, just like we saw with Trevor Williams, Mitch Keller could very easily be out the door at any given moment. I would not think that it would happen this offseason. I feel like the Pirates are going to give him one last opportunity to redeem himself and then either make a move during the season, later in the year, or ultimately at the end of the 2022 season if he does not pan out. But it's not looking good for him right now. A career 6.02 ERA through 39 starts and 170 innings pitched. That's just unacceptable for someone that you thought was going to be your next prodigy for the starting rotation. You had such high regards for him. And, of course, the same could be said about Tyler Glass now, who ultimately found success in Tampa Bay. But the thing with Glass now that's different from Keller is that Glass now absolutely dominated in the minor leagues. He lit it up in low A, high A. He lit it up at double A and triple A. It was when he got to the big leagues that he struggled. Mitch Keller, while he wasn't as poor as he was now, he wasn't as dominant as Glass now was either. And so he's running into some of the same issues that he had in the minor leagues, just at a much larger scale. And then, of course, he's not pitching with the confidence that he needs to on the mound either. And 
of course, Keller spent some time working with Joe Hanrahan down in AAA, trying to get him to be more confident. And it appeared in short bursts that Keller may have gotten more confident, but over a long-term picture, we don't know how well that's going to pay, pay off, and we don't know how much Keller's confidence is truly going to improve. If it does significantly, then it would be a great sign to see, and you could make the argument that his optioning to AAA Indianapolis was worthwhile. But then if it doesn't, and he continues to struggle, continues to pitch the way that he has over his first 39 starts as a Pirate, then it's not going to be anything substantial for him. And then you're going to start to question when the Pirates move on. Mitch Keller was a second-round pick of the Pirates in 2014. Nobody wants to see Mitch Keller officially be labeled as a bust. But just like the situation with baseball as a whole in the lockout, it's the same thing with Mitch Keller. He's done it to himself. He's put the Pirates at this point where if they aren't already, they're going to give him the ultimatum of you either have to get results or we're going to move on because you can't fire Oscar Marine to try and bring in a third pitching coach to figure out Mitch Keller. At some point, you just have to move on from Mitch Keller himself, and it becomes an issue of the player rather than the pitching coach or the philosophy that that pitching coach or even the organization wants to use. I mean, it's the classic fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you philosophy because you can't continue to give Mitch Keller opportunity after opportunity and just go through multiple pitching coaches because there have been pitchers that the Pirates have brought in and had success under Oscar Marine. Dylan Peters was acquired on waivers from the Los Angeles Angels. He came to Pittsburgh about halfway through the season, started at AAA Indianapolis, did very well under Oscar Marine. You saw some good flashes, especially in 2020 under or with JT Brubaker. Of course, he struggled this past season. And so now it's up to Brubaker to ultimately get back to what he did in 2020. You had Rowanzi Contreras work his way up through the minor leagues. He's done very well. And so, again, the Pirates, they have talented pitchers. They have a great pitching coach in Oscar Marine. And so it's solely up to Mitch Keller of whether or not he remains a Pirate after this season, upcoming season rather, or where his future takes him. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, the latest with the Pittsburgh Steelers and a look ahead to their Halloween matchup against the Cleveland Browns right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest with the Pittsburgh Steelers. As I mentioned before the break, we're looking ahead now, post-bye week for the Steelers as they begin their prep work for a Sunday afternoon contest in Cleveland, Ohio, to take on the Browns. Now, this past week, while the Steelers were practicing and enjoying some time off from a competition, Cleveland was hosting the Denver Broncos, who came in, of course, 3-3. and The Browns also entering that game 3-3. and The Browns are a pretty beat-up team currently, dealing with multiple injuries. Of course, Baker Mayfield did not play. They were without their top running backs, Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. But they had their top target in Odell Beckham and, of course, Jarvis Landry as well. David Njoku getting some receptions from Keenum at the same time. And I talked previously about what the Browns' defense did well, especially on the interception from Teddy Bridgewater coming from John Johnson. But the concern that the Browns have brought to the table for the longest time has primarily been their offense. And spearheaded by Baker Mayfield, of course, with that dynamic duo, Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt, and then Landry, Odell Beckham on the outsides, along with Njoku, Austin Hooper, their other tight end, and Rashard Higgins. But the Cleveland Browns in this game against Denver did not look like what you typically would expect from a Cleveland offense with this much talent. They looked slow. They looked lethargic like it was a preseason game. Case Keenum did just enough to win that football game for Cleveland. And when I say just enough, I literally mean the bare minimum. Through just one touchdown pass, didn't even accumulate 200 yards through the air, which just goes to show you how little faith the Browns have in him to throw the football successfully. Of course, going 21 for 33 in that game, which isn't necessarily the greatest completion percentage, but it was significantly higher than what we saw from Ben Roethlisberger at times this season. The Browns' offense really did not look in sync. The only exception to that being Dearness Johnson, who had 22 carries for 146 yards in a score. He averaged 6.6 yards per carry. That was really what ignited Cleveland's offense, led by Case Keenum. Of course, it's a possibility that Baker Mayfield could play Sunday against Pittsburgh, but it's not a guarantee. He wanted to play against Denver, but was ultimately advised not to, which is why Keenum got the reins. And so we very much could see a similar situation this week where as much as Baker Mayfield would love to be on the field suit up against Pittsburgh, his injuries just are not going to permit him to do that. And so it could be the Case Keenum show all over again. But from what I saw Thursday night in that Broncos-Browns game, this Cleveland team, especially given their current injury state, is more than beatable. If you contain Dearness Johnson right now, you will win that football game easily. Case Keenum is not good enough whatsoever to go out there and win a football game against the Pittsburgh Steelers defense. He just isn't. I don't care about what he did in Minnesota with the Vikings and the Minneapolis Miracle. It's just not going to happen for him in Cleveland. And there's a report here now from a couple of hours ago from Jacina Anderson that Nick Chubb is expected to return to the game this Sunday against the Steelers. So it's certainly possible now that Cleveland, they may have a two-headed monster again in the backfield of Nick Chubb, Dearness Johnson. But even with that, this Cleveland offense is still not good enough to beat the Steelers. 
because Nick Chubb is going to be working his way back from an injury. He may not even be the lead back, especially after the game that Dearness Johnson had against the Broncos with as much as they gave him the football, as many rushing yards as he accumulated. He, being Nick Chubb, may not even be the number one running back. He may be that change of pace running back to complement Dearness Johnson. And that's something that Cleveland has the means of being able to do successfully. So, even aside from that, this Cleveland offense, especially if they don't have Baker Mayfield, they're not going to win this football game. Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham are not going to be able to bail out Case Keenum the way that Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen did up in Minnesota. In that game against the Broncos, Jarvis Landry, five receptions, 37 yards. Odell Beckham, two receptions, 23 yards. They combined for seven receptions, 60 yards, if you do the math. 14 total targets. They're not going to be enough to change that football game. Unless the Steelers' defense, and the secondary in particular, just officially does not show up and does absolutely nothing, the Steelers are going to be forcing Cleveland to ultimately run the football to try and do anything with their offense. And it's more than likely still going to be a run-heavy offense for the Cleveland Browns because of the lack of trust that they have in Case Keenum. And you know as well as I do, fans of the Cleveland Browns are going to find any and every excuse possible if the Pittsburgh Steelers win this football game to try and justify why they won. And you're going to hear a lot of, well, if we had Baker Mayfield, these three things that they ramble off would have happened. Or you only beat us because we were injury prone and we are missing half of our offense. Who cares? It's football. You've got to adjust. You've got to move on. Baker Mayfield goes down. Case Keenum has to step up, be that next man. It has to have that mentality. And so in order to prevent that, Case Keenum needs to be able to go out there and throw the football. And by prevent that, I'm talking about prevent the excuses of, well, if we had Baker Mayfield, we would have won. No. You're a quarterback in the NFL. I understand there's going to be a talent difference between a starter and a backup. That's inevitable. Every single team has that drop-off. It's just a matter of how much is said drop-off. But that quarterback is on the roster because they, if the time came to them, would give you an opportunity to go out there and win a football game. Hence why Keenum is Mayfield's backup. So Keenum, especially against this Pittsburgh Steelers defense, is really going to have to put the game on his shoulders. And Keenum is really going to have to go out there to throw the ball. And I honestly would not be surprised if the Steelers take one out of the Seahawks' playbook. Last Sunday, not yesterday, of course, the Sunday prior, when the Steelers played the Seahawks on Sunday Night Football, you saw the Seahawks sack seven, eight players in that linebacker box which I defined on Monday as the area between the offensive and defensive lines and then including the linebackers as well. The Steelers will stack seven to eight members of their defensive 11 into that box to stop Cleveland's rushing attack. And I would not be surprised at all if they dared Cleveland and dared Case Keenum to try to throw the football downfield. That is the only way that the Steelers, or rather the Browns, will get any success out of this game if the Steelers take one from the Seahawks playbook is by throwing the football. And from a Steelers' perspective, it makes sense to force the Browns to throw the football. When a quarterback does not even accumulate 200 passing yards in a game, you know that the game plan is to run the football. You know that if that quarterback is particularly a backup quarterback, the game plan is going to be to run the football. And the fact that the Browns offense as a whole 
only put up 17 points and beat the Broncos by the skin on the back of their neck. It's a situation where this game should have the Steelers as heavy favorites. If the Steelers lose this game on Sunday to an to an injury-riddled Cleveland Browns team without their number one quarterback, then the Steelers have more issues than we expected. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. This game is what should be a an easier game for the Steelers because of how injury-riddled this offense is for the Cleveland Browns. They have no Case Keenum, or rather they do have Case Keenum. They don't have Baker Mayfield. They don't have Kareem Hunt. Yes, they're going to more than likely get Nick Chubb back. Yes, they have Dearness Johnson, but they don't have Kareem Hunt. And again, with Baker Mayfield, it was Mayfield who made Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, Austin Hooper, and David, David Njoku look good. With the exception of Njoku, those other three names that I mentioned, Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, and Austin Hooper, all of them have joined the Browns offense very recently and were brought in to give Baker Mayfield targets because they knew Mayfield was talented. He needed someone to throw to. And it's Baker Mayfield who looks all of them, makes all of them, I should say, look good. Now, speaking of the AFC North, is there a new team that the AFC North has to worry about? And of course, I'm not talking about the Browns that I just mentioned. I'm not talking about the Steelers, nor am I talking about the Ravens. I'm legitimately talking about the Cincinnati Bengals. Because the Bengals currently sit 5-2, and 2-0 in the AFC North, have defeated the Steelers and the Ravens. Now, the game against Pittsburgh, the Bengals won 24-10. They went into Baltimore yesterday and won 41-17. With as strong as Baltimore's defense is, that takes a lot to go into Baltimore and find a way to beat them that significantly. I mean, it's just not by coincidence that that happened. It was a legitimate effort from the Bengals' offense. You had Joe Burrow throwing for 416 yards in that game with three touchdowns. And yes, he had an interception in the end zone that, had it been thrown more accurately, could have been touchdown number four. But based on what I'm seeing right now, with the weapons that Joe Burrow has in Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd, they have Joe Mixon out of the backfield. This Bengals team, led by Joe Burrow and their offense, is seriously legitimate. And they seriously have the potential to win the AFC North. I never thought I would be uttering those words right now. If you had told me at any point last season that through seven games the Bengals would be atop the AFC North, I honestly would have laughed in your face and told you that you're full of you-know-what. Because the Bengals were not a great football team at all last year. And under Zach Taylor, they have turned things around so much this season. It's unbelievable. You know, everybody wanted the Bengals to draft Penny Sewell, the tackle from Oregon. The Bengals were criticized significantly when they passed him up to select Jamar Chase out of LSU. That was not a coincidence. It wasn't just a matter of, well, we wanted to give Burrow another weapon to throw to. It wasn't just a weapon. It was his number one weapon from LSU. It takes time for a quarterback and wide receiver to develop that chemistry between each other and that trust of where the quarterback likes to put the ball, where the receiver wants to catch the ball. Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, they already had that established. And so to go out and get 
Joe Burrow's number one target when he was at LSU, only being separated a year, it probably took those two maybe five, ten passes at most to gain back what they had at LSU. And it was on display yesterday against Baltimore. It's been on display all season. There's no denying that. But it was on display much more than it was in the past. And it helped Cincinnati beat the Ravens by 24 points. And at halftime, you didn't necessarily expect such a lopsided contest when the Bengals were up 13-10 to and were only up 3-0 at the end of the first quarter. But the Bengals' offense continued to be successful. Jamar Chase, eight receptions, 201 yards, and one touchdown. And again, let me remind you, Joe Burrow threw for 416 yards. Almost half of Joe Burrow's receiving yards, rather passing yards, were accumulated in the hands of Jamar Chase, which he then turned into receiving yards. And then, of course, their tight end, C.J. Uzama, three receptions, 91 yards, two touchdowns. So between Jamar Chase and C.J. Uzama, that almost right there accumulates for 75% of Joe Burrow's passing yards, all 416 of them. And again, it's very rare to see the Ravens' defense, as strong as they are, give up 416 yards passing on top of the total rushing yards that they gave up, 111. So they gave up 527 yards of total offense and 41 points as well. That is a rarity. But again, it's a credit to the Bengals, led by Zach Taylor and second-year quarterback Joe Burrow with their ability to go out there and after rebuilding the roster significantly in free agency and the draft, producing a successful team to this point. It's incredible how quickly they've turned around, and in a way you have to admire it because that is how teams should be turning around very quickly. Look at the Jets. They've been very poor for so long. Why can the Jets not replicate what the Bengals just did? The Jaguars, they have been poor now for a couple of years. Why can they not replicate what the Bengals did? The same goes for the Eagles and the Falcons. The Buccaneers, they took a little bit longer than the Bengals did, but they finally got their A-game going again. Yes, they had to go out and bring in the oldest quarterback in the National Football League, but he's certainly not playing like it, going by the name of Tom Brady. But, again, all of these teams who are struggling right now, the Jets, the Jaguars, the Falcons, the Lions, they all need to have a turnaround like what the Bengals did to get themselves back into the groove of things. And, again, it's a complete respect it's complete respect for me to see what the Bengals did. And it's truly amazing that they turned it around that quickly. And yes, the Steelers do need to be scared about the Bengals because they could very easily lose both regular season contests in the 17-game schedule to Cincinnati and have the Bengals go on to win the division. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Best Online Radio. When we come back, the latest with the Pittsburgh Penguins as another member of the roster enters the COVID protocols. And despite that, the Penguins continue to keep cruising right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show live on the BBN online radio.
And we're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show live on BBN Online Radio for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Penguins. As I mentioned before that brief music break, there is another Pittsburgh Penguin in the COVID protocols. Their top defenseman, Chris Letang. Letang was ruled out of the game Saturday night against the Toronto Maple Leafs after entering the COVID protocols then. The Penguins and head coach Mike Sullivan were hopeful that it was going to be a false positive similar to what they experienced with Tristan Jari. However, that was not the case as Latang underwent another test at some point either yesterday or today when the team arrived for practice, and that one was positive as well. So that now makes Jeff Carter, Chris Latang, the two current Penguins, sidelined because of COVID-19. We saw Jake Gensel and Zach Aston Reese miss time at the start of the season because of it as well. So now four Penguins who have missed or will miss game time from COVID, all of which are vaccinated. So you can't even begin to bring in your politics and justify, well, if they had been vaccinated, this would have happened. At the start of the season, I believe Gary Bettman said only four players across all 32 NHL teams were unvaccinated. And Ron Hextall had said well before that that all the Penguins were. So that cannot be brought into play. Now, of course, the Penguins responded very well without Chris Letang Saturday night against the Maple Leafs, winning 7-1. to Yes, you heard that correctly. If you didn't watch it, didn't see anything about it, the Penguins defeated the Toronto Maple Leafs 7-1 to Saturday night. It was a game where the Penguins were just scoring one right after the other. They could not be slowed down. Mike Matheson even getting in on the action. It was a five-point, rather three-point night for Marcus Pedersen, and he led the way for the Penguins. His plus-minus was five as he was on the ice for a significant portion of the Penguins' goals, whether or not he was contributing. But, again, it just goes to show how the Penguins are operating and how they are functioning without their players. Of course, yes, they are a very deep team, but that's exactly what you need in the National Hockey League. There's no more of the days where you can get by with just having 12 solid forwards, 6 solid defensemen, and 2 solid goaltenders. No, you need that depth now. Even without COVID, you need that depth because... As the game gets faster, which it has continued to get faster, players are going to get tired much quicker. They're more likely to get injured, whether it's a small knock or something that sees them miss significant time. In the game against the Maple Leafs Saturday night, the Penguins did not have Jeff Carter, Sidney Crosby, Chris Letang, Evgeny Malkin, and Brian Rust. That was two-thirds of their top line last year. Of course, Sidney Crosby, Brian Rust. That was without their top three centers, Crosby, Malkin, Carter. Their top four players on their first power play unit, Crosby, Latang, Malkin, Rust. And then, of course, their top defenseman as well in Chris Letang. And the Penguins continue to get it done. They continue to be competitive in every single game that they play. And they continue to find ways to put pucks to the net, get them into the back of the net, complemented by strong goaltending from Tristan Jari. And it's truly remarkable to see how well Jari is playing because it's not something that 
you would have expected. Obviously, when I say that, I'm not underlining that I anticipated Jari to play bad. That's not where I'm going with it by any means. But coming off of arguably the worst playoff series for the Penguins in a couple of years, one that they were much the better team and should have won if it weren't for Jari's performance, you didn't expect Tristan Jari to be so strong out of the gate. You anticipated it to be a much slower jump, like he would get there eventually, he would slowly build his confidence, but no, his confidence has been back from day one, and it has continued to get higher and higher. He is one of the top goaltenders in the league at this point, statistically, because of the way he is so calm right now, and of course, that's a credit to Jari for being able to rebound so quickly. That's a credit to the new goaltending coach, Andy Kyoto to go out there, work with Tristan Jari, allow him to be much more relaxed, allow him to be confident in himself once again, and really allow him to have the success that the Penguins are, know he's capable of producing. If you look at the Penguins' defensive pairings from the game Saturday night against Toronto... The top unit was Brian Dumoulin. John Marino was slid up to fill in for Latang. Ruido was moved up to the second pairing with Mike Matheson and then Marcus Pedersen on the opposite side as Mark Friedman, who was ultimately inserted into the lineup. And again, I've talked about it before with Mark Friedman. His versatility is crucial for the Penguins. He played well when he filled in on the left side for Matheson at the start of the season. And now he's filling in on the right side for the time being because of Chris Letang being out with COVID. It's very rare to see someone like Mark Friedman and have someone like Mark Friedman on your roster who is capable of playing the left-handed defenseman role and the right-handed defenseman role, despite one of them being his offhand. In this case for Friedman, it's the left. That versatility is crucial for the Penguins, and it's allowing them to have success And yes, Chris Letang is a much more offensive-minded defenseman than Mark Friedman. Defensively, they're not losing a whole lot with Letang out of the lineup and Mark Friedman in the lineup. And that right there is a credit to Ron Hextall for going out and finding players that he felt would give the Penguins a chance to win. And that's a credit to Mike Sullivan, who has taken the players that him... Brian Burke and Hextall himself have identified as those that could play the system properly that Mike Sullivan has in place and ultimately went out there and had them executed. Gave them the tools to succeed and they've taken those tools and ran with them completely. That is picture perfect in the definition of textbook for the Penguins. I'm not worried about the fact that the Penguins have so many players missing right now. If this were any other organization, more than likely they would be panicking and the excuses would be starting to roll in about why they're so poor, why their start to the season hasn't been what they wanted, and if they ultimately miss the playoffs, why that would be, and it would all come back to this. The Penguins are not in that position. They have the depth, they have the talent, and it's a next-man-up mentality. I talked about that earlier with the Cleveland Browns and Baker Mayfield, the same applies here with the Penguins. It's the next man up mentality. When one player goes down, it's another opportunity for someone else to go out there and take advantage. Drew O'Connor was originally not in the Penguins lineup in the opener against Tampa Bay. Wasn't on that fourth line. Penguins dealt with a couple of injuries. O'Connor was back into the lineup against the Florida Panthers and has found success on that fourth line working with Brian Boyle. And again, with that next man up mentality. It was a bit of a shock to see Drew O'Connor not on that opening night roster in Tampa Bay because of how well he performed in the preseason and Mike Sullivan even highlighting him as one of the best players in camp. But he was that next man up when his time arose. He filled in and he has filled in well. And 
it's going to be a difficult decision for Mike Sullivan. When these players start to get healthy and come back, whether it's from COVID or injuries, what they ultimately do with their roster because they have so much talent. Yes, some players are ultimately going to have to go to Wilkes-Barre Scranton, but you're not going to want them to leave because of what they've brought to the table thus far. And it's going to be some pretty heartfelt conversations in the office of either Mike Sullivan or Ron Hextall. But those players also know that it's one injury, it's one player testing positive for COVID away from them getting another opportunity to not only continue what they had been doing at one time, but to then cement themselves into the lineup permanently. And you're starting to reach that point now with players like Drew O'Connor, with Mark Friedman, and many others, where they are proving and trying to prove to Mike Sullivan that it's impossible to take them out of the lineup. Brian Boyle, another one as well. He has two goals through this season. Danton Heinen, of course, not expected to be taken out of the lineup, but certainly not going to at this point. And even Brock McGinn, he has a goal and three assists through six games so far this season. Rather five for the Penguins, so even better. And it makes McGinn look that much stronger as a player and a member of the Penguins' bottom six. So all of them are making the case to be kept in the lineup, which is why it's going to be so difficult for Mike Sullivan and for Ron Hextall to ultimately decide who they keep in the game day lineup, who they keep on the NHL roster, and who ultimately gets sent down to Brooksbury Scranton, which is why I've said before it's going to be ultimately a decision of who can we send down to Wilkes-Barre Scranton without having to put them on waivers? Because if you put Brian Boyle on waivers right now, he's gone. If you put Evan Rodriguez on waivers right now, he's gone. If you put Brock McGinn on waivers, he's gone. Even Drew O'Connor. Now, Drew O'Connor is one that could be sent to Wilkes-Barre Scranton without having to claim waivers or be put on waivers. But hypothetically, if Drew O'Connor was at that point where he needed to be put on waivers to clear and go down to Wilkes-Barre Scranton, he's gone. And so because of all of that, because of the depth that the Penguins have, it's going to be frightening to see how good they truly are when they get the Stars back. Crosby's inching closer and closer to his return. He was taking line rushes, which doesn't necessarily mean anything other than just getting him some work with the active roster. But it's showing that he's getting closer to that return, and he's starting to feel more and more like himself. An injury that had been affecting Crosby ever since the 2014 Olympics, Winter Olympics, that is, in Sochi, which is mind-blowing because knowing that now, you really think, well, how could how good could Crosby have truly been if he had taken care of that sooner? And not to say that Crosby has been bad because he's been far from it, but the better wording should have been how much better could Crosby have been if that wrist did not bother him for the last six to seven years? Because if it was not bothering him, maybe instead of having 40 points on a season, he's pushing towards 50 and gives the Penguins that slight edge, especially in that playoff series against the Islanders when they got swept, especially in the bubble against Montreal, or even last playoffs against the Islanders again when they lost in six games. Had Crosby not been dealing with that wrist injury, who knows where the Penguins could have been. The sky is the limit, which is, again, a credit to Mike Sullivan for coming in, having this system in mind, getting the players to execute it, and being consistent over the last several years since his appointment as head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins because it's very rare to see a coach like Mike Sullivan who has a system in place and not only can go out and find a specific type of player that fits their system well, 
But then when that player ultimately isn't producing or contributing enough, the Penguins then move on from him and bring in someone who is just as capable of playing that Mike Sullivan system. Whether it was Jim Rutherford as general manager or Ron Hextall, both of them are capable of doing that. And it's, again, a credit to Sullivan for having a system that is easy to play and one that is very widespread in terms of the players that can come in and ultimately thrive in that system. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I cannot thank you enough for tuning in on this chilly Monday here in Bethany, West Virginia. Be sure to tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.